0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
3: all right thank you for tuning into the heritage radio network um we took you through a range of emotions in our opening numbers today (laughs) there were ups there were downs there were highs there were lows um really excited to welcome bob's red mill to the family i'm sure you guys um even if the name is not ringing a bell next time you're in the grocery store and you're picking up almost any type of pulse or grain they are the kind of Plastic bags uh, with the picture of the kind of lovely looking old man and are now uh, the flagship sponsor of Heritage Radio Network, which is super awesome. And we're really excited to be working with them. (laughs) David's holding up a giant picture of Bob. Um, Anyway, so you hear a lot. You'll probably be hearing a little bit more from them uh, through the show and through some of the other programs. Um, you, of course, have tuned into the Farm Report. I am your host, Erin Fairbanks. I'm excited next week. Uh, my co host, Charlie Comer, will be back and we'll get to hear a little bit about her amazing uh, tours. She's been away traveling, but today, um, we are also going to be taking uh, a little bit of a trip. We are really excited to welcome to the studio Lorenzo Caponetti. Lorenzo, welcome. Hello.
4: I'm <laughs> glad to be here. Very excited.
3: <laughs> um, so you guys are probably picking up on an accent. Uh, Lorenzo's in town um, from Tuscania, Italy. It's about 50 miles outside of Rome. And he is working this evening with uh, Chef Mike Anthony at, the Unti- at Untitled, uh, the restaurant Untitled at the Whitney putting together an olive oil dinner that's a little bit about uh, of what we're going to talk about today um you guys i i have to uh, implore you to check out the caponetti casa caponetti website which is www.casacaponetti.com because Laurence, you guys do so much stuff at your you know there's there's cows there's pigs there's olive oil there's Etruscan ruins, there's, uh, you know, vegetable farms, there's a restaurant, there's an internship program, uh, there's a nonprofit, we're not going to have time to cover everything today. Um, But uh, I do, I I do think where I'd love to start is talking a little bit about what a special place, um, just geographically, your your farm is, and, and a little bit about the kind of history of who shaped the land and how that's impacted kind of the work and the opportunities, but also the responsibilities that you guys are bringing to your operation today
4: well that's, that's, that's a, a lot of I know right I a, lot, like, a lot of stuff into a question <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm like notorious for asking the like eight question question I'm like take it away, Sam <laughs>
4: uh, Well anyway, Tuscania is the, that's the name of the town, and it will probably ring a bell. In this country, as Tuscany, which is actually true, even if we're falling out of it today, but it's the same root of a name that brings us back to the Etruscan people. Etruscan people were a pre-Roman civilization. is actually the civilization that gave the start to Rome. Uh, they were active between any time between 1100 and like 100. BC just to locate them in time. And what they did was quite special because they were actually able to tame all of central Italy from a wild set of marshes and woods into one of the most sophisticated agricultural systems of of all times. They had two main keys to achieve this goal. One was that they were very good sailors and they were good traders and they they had a lot of connection with the east and the Fertile Crescent, and that's where the technology was back then because they had been developing farming, you know, like in the previous 2,000 years. And the other feature was that they were very good miners. And by mining, they were able to dig these tunnels, water tunnels, Uh, You have to imagine that our bedrock is very porous. It's kind of volcanic lava that has solidified. It's like a solid sponge. And if you're cutting through it, you can either condensate water and collect water that was fresh water, or you can actually drain what's on top. And the top of it, being volcanic, our region is full with former lakes or former basins that are closed basins, and along the Etruscans Etruscan were able to drain those marshes and bring into cultivation muck. It was some of the most fertile soil ever.
3: I feel like it's like, I really want to just like stop here and kind of imagine, you know, ar- arriving onto this piece of property 2,700 years ago, thinking about like the tools, like technology, the workforce that you have and looking at a marsh and being like, you know what? This is where we want to set it up and we're going to do that by, you know, carving out, you know, tunnels in incredibly hard like Well, well,
4: I'm going to I'm going to tell you a story that is not related to my farm, but it is definitely related to what the Etruscans were able to achieve. South of Rome there is a, a, an area of volcan- former volcanoes. And in there we got two basins, two craters. One is Lake Albano, one is uh, former Lake Aricia. The Aricha Basin is very flat. The, the Albano Crater is very, has very steep walls. Now, about 600 years before Christ, they were able to dug a tunnel that is almost one mile long that crosses under the mountain and connects the two.
3: That's just amazing. So, so
4: they were able to use the lake, which is still there. They regulate the level, and they were used to they were able to use that as a capacitor. The whole volcano was a capacitor for water and the basin the walls downstream, the Aricha crater, which is very shallow, they drained that out and they had muck and they had water to irrigate from the lake in the volcano. And this was like 600 years before Christ.
3: I'm feeling like such a slacker right now. But that's <laughs> I'm like that, I've never dug anything. I've that, like barely dug a hole. You know, <laughs> but that,
4: that 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 comes to what you were saying, what 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 responsibility do we have? I mean, today if we look at at that place in in time and in history and in geography that our civilization is at we think like we're the badass we think like we're doing you know the right thing i mean i challenged you to take a pick right. and a volcano and a lake and and and, and do those kind of those type of things so this is this this these are the challenges that we that we're facing basically every day when we set out to farm the Etruscan people were the ones who introduced the plough with the iron shape mm-hmm. uh, in order to put in cultivation all the clay soils that are closer to the river and closer to the sea they were able to bring in you know concept like private property of land writing uh, a structured society and a structured society means that they were very good at farming because you cannot have a structured society unless those who are farming are able to create a surplus. If everybody is always only looking for food, there's never a differentiation in, in society. There were very good traders. There were very good lobbyists, in a sense. You right. know. And there's a lot of you know there's a lot of people that say you know there are three major uh, civilizations of the late antiquity, like the Romans and the Greek and the Etruscans. And a lot of people look at the Greek like the ones who invented democracy, and so they should be regarded as the good ones or the Romans are the ones who expanded the empire you know I like to I I kind of relate a lot more to the Etruscans than the Greek because yes the Greek they invented democracy but the Etruscans they invented the lobbying system and democracy is not that healthy today Well, the lobbying system seems to be very strong
3: (laughs) (laughs) oh brother (laughs) yeah well I mean I think it's too it's like not something that we often talk about on the program is Is the way that uh, agriculture and culture are so intertwined historically, and then kind of fast-forwarding today, I think what you you see a lot in people's real desire to reconnect with their food supply, to reconnect with the land, is like a little bit of this kind of like yearning for that connection to, to to something real, to like being able to put your hands into something and it must, I would say like for you, there must be something a little strange about like, what are you going to do on the farm that someone 2,700 years from now is going to, you know, be able to, to benefit from uh, it's a, I, you know, it's like, it's a very big picture thinking in the, well, in the landscape of but, having to like also but, run a business day to day. But, but,
4: but uh, now here we're kind of jumping mm-hmm. from, you know, in, in, in time, but, but if we, if we, Uh, uh, put ourselves in the mindset of working for a future the only thing that we should do now is basically is planting trees you know even if we, we we all have a big problem today which is like 400 uh parts per million of co2 in the atmosphere and and even if we potentially will wake up tomorrow into a, a world that is just running on uh, renewables we still will need to take some of those co2 out of the atmosphere and one of the best and fastest ways of doing that is building permanent biomass and we can build up permanent biomass by planting trees or we can and or we can build up biomass in the soil by increasing the organic matter into the soil and and you know and that's just the way to go and it's even a a way that it's gonna feed us and feed us with, with great food. So <clears throat> when I'm looking at that, of course we want to be energy conscious, we want to, you know, save water when we flush the toilet and whatever, but there is a lot more that we can do and there's a lot more that we can do in uh in, in, in farming. That's basically how I came up. I started the farm twenty twenty two years ago almost by chance. I didn't plan to become a farmer, you know, life is sometimes is just unexpected and it's that's why we like it (laughs) and uh and um but we started off by breeding horses and we found the olive trees on on the farm and then as we as we went we we started realizing there were a number of things that weren't functioning and at the same time the farm was way too big for me to manage so i had to simply discard parts of it because i wasn't able to keep up with everything and that was that was good because most of the time with nature, the less you do and the better it is. And so I started realizing that all of those places that I had discarded can act- could actually bring me something. So my my mindset is is never to try and reach for one set goal that I want to reach like 100%. It's always trying to understand what can I do with what I have and make the most of it. And how can I enrich it by adding different features. So we started with the horses. We had to add the cattle, because the horses are so poor graziers, they just like to trample over the grass versus eating. The cattle are a lot more pragmatic and down to earth, and uh, <clears throat> and they have two <laughs> completely different uh, ways of grazing. Then we, of course, we end up heading the uh, vegetable garden for us, and with the vegetable garden came the first pig, because of course the garden is giving us so much when we don't need it. And uh, <clears throat> now, 20 years later, we have a whole system that is basically all integrated in which the livestock and pigs are <clears throat> sorry integrated with the mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, with the olive oil making. I was telling you before that we are feeding our cattle the, the clippings from pruning the trees. This is something that you know twenty years ago. I, when I started the mainstream is you take them out the field and you burn it
3: the, tri- are, the tripping well the, the
4: cleaning, yeah the tr- yeah the trimmings then we started mulching and we started mulching off then we started mulching on site because we didn't want to do any schlepping, you know, and then we were able to yet open up one more biological cycle with the cows eating those right on site and giving us manure. But at the same time, we shifted more and more toward a more and more natural way even of managing the trees. Our pruning is reduced to a minimum. The trees are very natural. This brings to the fact that we have very high-yielding plants that are kind of yielding, the, the yield is kind of scattered, Kind of randomly, from year to year, we have five hundred trees, and every year we we never harvest more than two hundred of those, but that's because we are shooting for maybe eighty percent of the crop that is there because the other twenty percent the pigs will eat it
3: okay so um I'm like wondering you ha you it's you know tw- twenty years ago you're on the property, you're um, raising horses you you essentially say you like kind of discover the olive trees um, and how do you go from like oh there's a bunch of olive trees to producing olive oil uh,
4: <laughs> like how
3: do you you know like how do you kind of harness what had been you know cuz i'm assuming the trees had been like potentially like untended for some time so how do you like definitely
4: definitely there was there was a huge work again this was a, a whole process of growth for myself i don't have a background in farming i don't have a degree in farming i had no clue of what i was doing so the first first thing you do you you kind of steer toward elderlies that are have been doing that because you think they know what they're doing a lot of them are great a lot i learn a lot but as a matter of fact we need to understand that we're in, again in a place in in history in which the elderlies have been practicing for the last two generations a system that is new the elderly that have been around in the last 50 years, they've been dealing with tractors and chemicals that simply weren't there before, you know, and it's only now that we're starting to see the aftermath and there is something that simply doesn't, doesn't add up. So I started by doing a lot of effort, putting in a lot of work in order to try and prune and try and understand what to do and, and whatnot. And, and I, was, when I started producing the olive oil and, you know, it was oil you know right. but then i had an epiphany and the epiphany was when i was travelling to this country the first time this was 2003 2004 by again by a sh- twist of fate i found myself in kansas and then from there, <laughs>
3: what <laughs> exactly?
4: And then and then and then and then and I was and I, and I found myself in Kansas, just coming out of Uzbekistan, and it was this is another story that we'll tell another t- another time. But anyway, uh, um, and then I, by another f- twist of fate, I found myself at the Culinary Institute of America, and I started relating to people that were professionals into the into the business, and then it was. In 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 a, in, a, in a very short period of time, I ended up relating to people like Mike Anthony and people like Dan Barber and people that are, I mean, those are the high ups. Those yeah. are people that are knowing what they're doing, you know. And I was the epiphany was that I never had given that much credit to my olive oil because you know my trees are 500 trees over a gazillion trees that are in Italy, you know, and of course, I've been trying to do my best, but especially back then, I didn't know a shit about it. And uh, But the epiphany was that, hey, you know, I'm dealing with something that was left on my land by somebody that was before me. And I don't have to do anything but harvest this thing. And yet with this, I can produce something that is, you know, one of the best producing in the world. That's that's kind of cool, you know. So let's let's go back, and you know. And then what I did, starting from there, was that I had this relationship with the Culinary Institute of America, and they kept inviting me, you know, back every year, and 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 for about almost ten years, whatever. I made the point of making the one lecture better and better and better every year, right? And I, you know, and that brought me to back to on books, on the olive tree cultivation, the olive tree production. I was lucky enough to be admitted into a very short course to become a qualified professional miller, you know, for running a pressing facility. Okay. And, uh, you know, and in in the passing of time, I, I seek for different information. But again, one thing is the information on the technicalities about how to produce the olive oil. And one thing is be able to insert all of that knowledge and connect all of that knowledge with all the big, bigger picture, like, again, who was, who was, who was here before, who, who will be here next. Right. I, 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 I did refer to Uzbekistan because that's a country that I've been traveling to for many years as an archaeologist. And I had some friends in Samarkand, which is one of the old cities of the old Silk Road, And Samarkand happens to be on the same latitude as San Francisco. But that's exactly 12 time zones apart. So it's like on the, on the two opposite ends of our hemisphere, and I suddenly kind of had this image that I was kind of stuck in between those two cities and you know and this is kind of a horizontal line, and the vertical line is the line of time so i was I was suddenly try, uh, almost over, overwhelmed because i was I, I started asking myself, how is what I'm doing affecting somebody that is in Samarkand or?" Relating to somebody that is in the Bay Area or again relating to somebody that will be here in 2,700 years from now. It's it's kind of, it was kind of scary.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like um, a little bit what I'm hearing with regards to the oil, and I think this is true often uh, in in food in particular, there's a little bit of um, getting out of the way of the product, you know, like... Uh, I, I think when you're new to some, like, I felt like for myself as like when I was new to the kitchen, I thought to like make delicious food, I, I had to like put a lot of my self, you know, like, Oh, this just needs lots of stuff, right. Special techniques and certain things. But I feel like as you, as you kind of learn more, ultimately one of the weird outcomes is you end up doing less, like you get, you know, you're kind of just like getting out of the way of the process and letting the the thing kind of speak for itself and looking for ways to like reinforce its natural tendencies versus like exerting your will on onto it.
4: Well, this is, this is particularly true about olive oil making. And there's a very good reason, or at least the one, something that I feel like it's a good reason. And the reason is that of all uh, fat matters, the olive oil, the extra virgin olive oil, is the only one that is coming out of the flesh of the fruit and not the seed. This makes it possible for us to get it only through basically a squeezing. That's what we call a mild technology, which is basically a squeezing and then a separation between the different, you know, water and pits and bit shards and, 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 and all that. But my point is that this is a process of making the olive oil that doesn't involve any heat nor fermentation which in turn implies that the enzymes that were into the olive when the olive was on the tree, they are still alive today into the little can that I have. Did, that I did bring for you. <laughs> you brought me some? I, like, he, he was like,
3: when, when we were emailing, he's like, you know, can I bring you anything from Italy? And I'm like, uh, obviously some olive oil. <laughs> And it's interesting, but, too. I will say, guys, you know, you want to... And, and I think maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more in, this, in the second half of the show, is that you guys only sell direct from the farm. So I, I'm going to yep. hold that point. I'm going to let you finish. Yeah, and yeah,
4: yeah. But... The fact that these enzymes don't get killed, it means that all that we are tasting into the olive oil, which is basically then related to the healthy properties and the nutritional values, everything that is into the oil is made by those enzymes. And there's kind of no way of getting back. Working with an enzyme is only a matter of pre something. You either want those enzymes to be working and once you spark them, then they go or you don't want them to go because, and then you want to work preemptively. And, and and so this is why I say that olive oil making is, to me, is a lot more difficult than wine making. I know that a lot of people will hate me for saying this, <laughs> and and I'm here to stand up, you know, for, for that. But I, or, or what I say, maybe it's not more difficult, but the wine making is a note to the ability of man, while mm-hmm. the olive oil making is a note to the to the trees and you know, and to nature and 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 to the least intervention right. that we that we can do, which doesn't mean that we don't want to do anything. There are of course a number of things, a number of key uh, moments in which we do want to make choices, but the bulk of those choices are kind of. Uh, again preenting something Preventing. yeah
3: well let's take um let 's take a moment here we 'll take a quick break to um, hear from our our sponsor when we come back I want to talk a little bit about um, what some of those intervention points are so hang tight guys you're uh, of course listening to the heritage radio network this is the farm report, and we will be right back.
1: Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed. You get the bran, the germ, and the endosperm the germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. So what you want to do once you buy whole grain flour is keep it kind of wrapped so that oxygen can't get to it so it doesn't go rancid. But the good news about having that fat is that it has a lot of flavor. If you want, you can actually buy the wheat germ, for instance, and add it back to flours. But if you buy Bob's Red mill product, it already has the germ in it, so you don't have to. Learn more at bobsredmill.com podcast. Well, there were three babies born, one well, them couldn't see. Well,
4: there were three babies born, one well, couldn't see. There well, is just one out of three, I wish that baby it was me. There were three
3: babies born. Oh, man, it is a veritable uh, tour de force of of emotions here. Thank you, David. We are back. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. We are in studio with Lorenzo Caponetti of Casa Caponetti, uh, an um, amazing olive oil producer, amongst many other things. Um, Before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, the process of producing olive oil, and you made... You you threw down. You said you think uh, olive oil making is uh, potentially more challenging than winemaking, um, and you were talking about intervention points. And so I, I want to give folks I like an example or two of moments in the you know season, moments in the production that are kind of those critical decision making points where you you know maybe change something you're doing or decide. Uh, to to pull from that tree or not pull from that tree. I, I mean, I don't really know. Like, what are what? Can you give us like some examples of like those moments?
4: Well, the first decision is to decide when to start the harvest. Of course, like in basically any 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 other thing in 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 farming, the as as any type of fruit, the olives are creating some compounds as they ripen, and some of those compounds is something that we one. Uh, but at the same time, there is a huge uh, content in antioxidant into the olive and those antioxidants are going to decrease with the maturing with the ripening of the olive. The antioxidant is are something that the tree is producing in order to protect the olive. Mm-hmm. And there's no sense in there's no meaning in protecting something that is ready to go. Right. So those antioxidants are, are going down. So we, we basically want to shoot for the optimum moment and the optimum moment is when the bulk of the olives are turning from green to red Mm -hmm. and of course some of them will be black and some of them will still be green but we want the olives to be green because the green is chlorophylls and with the chlorophylls there's other type of antioxidant like squalene and other compounds that we one, mm-hmm. you know, and, and at the same time, we also want some fruitiness and, 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 and something like that. This is also related to the one main pest that we have, that is a f- basically a fr- specific fruit fly, specific of the olive, which will lay the eggs into the olive and can potentially de- destroy the whole product. And there are no real, as, as, even if today there are some tools, even in organic farming, none of them is actually doing much the, mm-hmm. the best is anticipate the harvest and try to to do our best in, in 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 doing that then another one as soon as we harvest the olives it's like a ticketing bomb because we have enzymes right that are starting to- they're not
3: getting any better once they come off the tree
4: <laughs> exactly so so we are making a point in in crushing the olives as soon as possible it is a standard for us that we crush the same night of you know the day's harvest, and um, and so acting very fast in that regard is is critical. Uh, once we get into the pressing facility, we want to decide what type of technology are we going to use it. Are we uh, are we going to use? Um, we are using still today using the stones to grind the olives. And and again, there are a number of people around there that are very critical of this because they say the main criticism to this is that the the olives, they get exposed to oxygen, Mm -hmm. so they will oxidate. But as a matter of fact, oxygen during the crushing is something that we want because there is one enzyme that we want to start working that is actually giving the start to a whole downfall of chemical reaction, which are creating all the... Turpens so all all anything that we can smell through the nose and through the palate mm-hmm. that is volatile is there thanks to that enzyme that is called traumatin, and it 's called traumatin because it gets released in the minute you know, it, the olive get crushed. But at the same time you don't want to kill that enzyme and by and killing that enzyme is easy if you overheat even instantaneously mm-hmm. the olive. And but if you figure that you want to crush at the same time the flesh and the pits, the stones that with their heavy mass are the only ones that are able to achieve that goal by turning gently. Right. You know, and so that is that is then immediately after that we want to keep the paste keep the olive the mashed olives as away as possible from oxygen at that point so we want to seal everything and of course we want to control temperature everybody's going crazy in this country for cold pressed right and anytime and and by actually by law anything that has the label virgin extra Uh the extra means that No, no temperature has exceeded like 30 degrees Celsius during the making. And the temperature is very important, again, because if you go above 30 Celsius, you will kill some enzymes. Right. At the same time, if you go below 27 Celsius, the oil simply wouldn't come out. Anybody who has tried washing a pan with cold water knows what I'm talking
3: about. <laughs> you know, so Oh, I is, like that example. <laughs>
4: you know, but my point is that more often than not, our harvest season is like in late October, early November, sometimes early December. More, more likely than not, the temperature outside will be much colder than 27 Celsius. I mean, 27 Celsius is whatever, 80s Fahrenheit. Uh-huh. So it's kind of warm. warm. And so, more likely than not, we had to actually warm up the the face to that degree. So are we still calling this cold? Right. Uh, you know, and uh, and 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 so this is to say. So these are all type of decision making that we that we want to make as we are producing the olive oil.
3: So I want to ask for like um, thinking about when you're you you know. So you mentioned. Um, what the olives look like on the tree, helping you determine like when you're going to harvest um, through the kind of uh, crushing and pressing process, really kind of controlling like time, controlling for temperature um, to activate or deactivate enzymes to create kind of the, f- the flavor profile you're ideally looking to mm-hmm. achieve. Um, how are you is, is there like a technical way of measuring those things like is that or is it like you you know you're are you just like literally looking at the tree and you're like now is the time or is there some kind of special instruments or as you're going into the kind of crush and press process are you like okay we put some kind of special you know thermometer in there that gives you information like where what are the kind of like technical interventions if there are any or is it just kind of look and feel um, of the producer making like those choices
4: uh, for me is is a matter of just look and feel I thought you were gonna
3: say that <laughs> <laughs> um, which is interesting um, because then it ties the oil to you in in uh, like a very intimate way like somebody else could come on same trees same property same equipment and their oils you know it's like, be different, different. Yeah. yeah
4: yes as much as I as much as I said that all of the credit is on my trees there is something that I'm doing, and uh, and yes. So the the keys the keys are in, in again trying to keep the temperature under control even after you have just harvested the olives. Right. I mean this is this is something that is coming up. I mean with this climate change weird thing, sometimes we find ourselves harvesting olives in short leaves, which is not the way it's supposed to be. Right. You know because again those enzymes are in there. You want to At that point, you want to keep the olives as cool as possible. And there are a lot of people that are with larger operation that are collecting the olives, the harvested olives, into big bins Mm -hmm. we're using those small bushels right but even in those sometimes if you're in a sunny day it gets hot it gets hot yeah so i i like this is something that i do that i take care of maybe just passing the olives from one bushel to the next that would be enough air to get them cooled down because as soon as they start again warming up then those microbes yeah, on things the, to activate because the, they're
3: alive. Absolutely. And I feel like there's a certain, like, I I feel like I've had the benefit of being exposed to the idea of fresh olive oil and, you know, kind of olive oil being like a seasonal thing. When I was uh, working for Zingerman's, they, of course, imported uh, oils from all over the world. And it was always very exciting during harvest season when like you would get the like shipment of that year's like season mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you know you could you could taste it and you can taste like oh 2013 like across a bunch of bunch of different regions in the world or the same oil you could taste you know last year and this year's production um, and like as a consumer I feel like that's not necessary like we've been taught you use you said cold press like you know people go out there like tell me how like tell me what to buy tell me how yeah. do I look for it like, and I think there's something To the like American way of using olive oil, where it's like, how do you even like actually use it? Like, how many oils should I be having at home? Like, do I have a collection to use for different? Like, how do you kind of think about it?
4: Well, that that goes. There's two ways of looking at this. One way is like the what I call the hedonistic part. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. That is that is purely the, the taste in regard to how it feels in your mouth right and of course i will always encourage people to have a selection of olive oils in their home versus only one Uh, but at the same time there's another way of looking at this and we want to look at the olive oil even if even the only one olive oil that you have on your counter like Mm -hmm. i have mine and you want to look at it as a seasonal product being it a juice that is coming out of the fle- of the fresher fruit is still fresh and is still alive. And being it alive, it changes through the time. Right. So I, what I, what what we do, we specialize in in f- freshest possible olive oil. So we harvest one day, we press that same night. The next day is in the meal. We don't filter it because filtering is is good in the long run, but it's bad in the short run. Right. And the threshold between. Short and long is like nine to ten months, right, so I like to trade off something in the last two months yeah. of the year, but I want to benefit you know for the for the for the first part, but this is to say that again the the olive oil will keep changing no matter what we do, or maybe even according to what we do, like we are packing in tin. Mm-hmm. And not glass, mm-hmm. and the tin is better for the oil because it's completely dark, dark yeah. and it's even more uh, oxygen tight than glass. And mm-hmm. we want the, to keep the oxygen out. And uh, and again, a lot of people look at us like we're doofuses because they say that oh, tin is cheap. Right. I don't. I don't care so much. The better. Right. You know, I'm yeah, selling. Great. I'm selling the oil oil. I'm not selling the container. You know, and 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 it's even sturdier and lightweight for shipping. So there are a number of of reasons. But 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 the, but the thing, This is to say that even the container that the oil is in, it impacts the quality of what comes to your table and especially in this country in which the bulk of the oil consumed is imported from abroad mm-hmm. you know I, I, I remember meeting with this guy at some point in this country years ago and he was very happy because he had bought a share of an olive yard in in umbria and he had his own oil shipped over every year and we were kind of in march and i said okay let me taste it and he said, oh you know it's still on the cruise ship it's still coming over and that oil was paid in November, right? And the guy didn't. Still, I mean, four months, five months later, the guy still didn't have it, right? You know. So there is the whole process of of distribution and getting it to your table and and all that that is uh, uh, in, impacting the quality of what you're getting. Not to speak about the fact that. Of course, this goes back to other, to other manner, but like the olive oils that we are doing are single olive. So hundred percent pure, of one variety. We have two, two different varieties, but we press them separately. Like the bulk of what you're buying is, is blends. Right. You know, so. so that,
3: it's less less of an expression of, like one of the things I thought was so interesting is that you bottle, uh, the, the labels will indicate like what, uh, like group of trees, uh, yes, that oil this, came from. Yeah, and like, yeah uh I, I was like oh, well, that's like some traceability because <laughs> yeah. you know i have to you have to keep in my folks that like lawrence's like entire farm is like 125 acres so we're not talking about like a vast array you know but no, the nuances no. <laughs> between yeah. like the, you know yeah. trees in yeah. kind of lot a and yeah. trees in lot you know yeah uh,
4: yeah but there's there, again there's a lot of people that say hey, can you really tell the difference from those trees and those trees and i said you know, it's like I, I bring up the matter of walking through a, a town. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the difference from one block to the next? Yes. You probably can't. <laughs> but if you keep walking long enough, you'll find yourself in Bushwick.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> like, draw the line. Um, well, we are. we I mean, were just about out of time. Um, I know that you have the dinner coming up at Untitled tonight. And it's an olive oil dinner. And I want to, with a couple of minutes that we have left, Talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you, you know, how you and Mike are working together and thinking about the the menu and like what, what what like what are the like applications that you're excited to be like tasting and sharing with folks for the dinner this evening? Uh,
4: well, there are many of them. One is going to be uh, uh, a cypher salad with fennel in it, which is something that I like a lot because our area is full with uh wild fennel and the wild fennel is very smelly and and so i can taste that into into the olive oil a lot so that is good of course there will be an olive oil cake which is also great and there's gonna be the result there's gonna be a few things that are all very enticing right and i brought two two different olive oils one is the canina one is the prantoyo that we make out of the two different uh, uh, varieties of olives that we that, that we have on the farm, and uh, there's gonna be a five course dinner, and before each of the courses are gonna hold a little spiel, a yeah. little a little conversation. a, a little conversation. I had four titles for these four conversation. One is private property because I will relate to the Etruscans and the concept of private property of, of land. Uh, one is unplugged because this is about the technicalities of making the olive oil, and mm-hmm. this is something that you only have so much control of, so it's like playing unplugged. Uh, one is going to be like uh, holding ground with a little help from my friends, and this will be how the cattle and the pigs, they actually play a role into the olive oil making. And then the last one will be, it's called Right Here on the Other Side. And this relates to a text from a song from, by the Purge uh-huh. Where he's talking, and it's a love song, and he says, Hey, you know, I need you. I just want you to be on my side and breath with me and hold me until I die and meet you on the other side. And I like to read that text as if I'm talking to an olive tree and we're breathing together because yeah. what I breath is something that he has produced, or you know, and, and I need him to, not, to feed me. And then, but also the other side, if I'm talking to an olive tree, the other side is already here. Right. You know, the olive tree is something that was left by somebody that was here before me. And when I go, I will leave those trees and potentially more trees to the ones that will be here.
3: Oh, man. Well, there are some very lucky diners uh, who are (laughs) going to be enjoying quite a show tonight. Uh, Lorenzo, thank you so much. Um, If folks want to find out more about your operation, Um, it's again www.casacaponetti.com and folks can come and stay with you
4: absolutely we have the bed and breakfast that is open all the time we do cooking courses we do daily tours the ruins are always open for free for anybody who wants to come yes we're always open to anybody
3: and can folks get the oil? How, is that like an option for individuals? I don't want to like break any hearts right now. Uh, I'm like, but I, I want to clarify so folks. No, no,
4: we, 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 we sell mainly to private people. Mm-hmm. We, again we register to the FDA, so we are legal in shipping the olive oil. The way it works, we have an email uh, mailing list that you want to subscribe subscribe to sure. and we are sending an olive oil alert out maybe one month before the the <laughs> the, the, the harvest starts right and then there's a basically uh uh i want to say you know a race right <laughs> in 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 getting your order and uh it's it's it, it i think it's a great way of doing business i kind of almost know personally all of my customers the bulk of them are recurring customers uh the few the bulk of them have Come to the farm, or potentially will come to the farm, or I met them in my in my travels, and and this is to say that you know what what happened is you place your order, and we put your order on hold mm-hmm. until we know how much we have. Right, and if we don't have enough, then we'll cut your order a bit so you know, that, in order yeah. in order that everybody can get, get their share. Yeah, oh, and, I like that. Yeah, and uh, and again, that's a great way of doing business. We we are, of course are able to make a little more profit. Like this, but we're also making more connections and and all that. And the only uh, trade-off is that people will have to buy a minimum order of two point five liters or five liters. That's the only two sizes that we that we're selling. But each of the each of, each order comes in ten little cans. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna get like ten five hundred milliliters, and this comes right before thanksgiving so a lot of people a lot of people buy and take and keep some for them and keep and 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 use the rest for gifts gifts.
3: what is that like what a special story um lorenzo i wish we had more time but we don't (laughs) uh thank you so much it's been a real pleasure
4: oh it's been my pleasure this place is awesome the whole operation is awesome i'm very proud and happy of being part of this community Keep going and, you know, keep it on, and we're going to change the word. (laughs) All (laughs) right. (laughs) One one radio show at a time. (laughs) One radio
3: show at a time. One olive tree at a time. Um, Well, please, if you're out there listening, if you believe in the work of Heritage Radio Network, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. We do depend um, entirely on the support of our underwriters like Bob Redmill that you learned a little bit more about on the show today, but also listeners like you, who throw us a couple of bucks. Um, we've still got some great T-shirts and other gifts. You can learn more and check out the swag by visiting www.heritageradionetwork.org. Also, if you listen via iTunes or Stitcher, um, take a moment and review the show. would love to hear um, your thoughts and feedback. It also helps other people find the program. Really appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for listening.